Welcome to Fret Knots with me, Rosie Bennett. Fret Knot is the podcast that aims to demystify the learning process that we all go through in our lives, work and otherwise. I'll be talking to the champions of our field and help us to figure out how we can learn from what they've already figured out. Nothing in life is a linear process, so let's get more at ease with the ups and the downs and realize that wherever we are in our journey, we really aren't alone. This podcast is brought to you by Augustine Strings, my string of choice, maker of the original nylon string for guitar and a company full of my favorite people in the guitar industry. Currently, listeners of Fretknot get 50% off of Augustine Strings using the code FRETKNOT50 at augustinestrings.com in the States or at ivamorantz.co.uk in the UK. I'll put those links in the description box in case I've said them completely wrong. And I'll put that code there too, FRETKNOT50, without spaces, all in capital letters. Just enter it at the checkout. In today's episode, I talk to Dr. Brian May, English musician, singer, songwriter, record producer, author, astrophysicist, and most commonly known as the lead guitarist of the rock band Queen. In this episode, we did run into some technical difficulty, which means the sound in the first half and the second half are very different. Um, there's a sort of low rumble in the first half that we did manage to sort in the second half. It's a really wonderful conversation, so I hope that nevertheless you will stick around to listen to all of it. Brian May, what is a lesson you have learnt that has been the most meaningful to you? <laughs> first answer that comes into my head is that I have learned nothing over the years because I'm still making the same mistakes in my life that I when I was a kid. I haven't learned to be confident enough of my own judgments or decisions. I haven't learned how to make decisions. I'm awful at making decisions. It kills me. And if it's a difficult decision, I become paralyzed and can't move. Especially if it's decisions which might hurt somebody. I just can't do it. I'm, I'm locked in this terrible place. So that's not a very good lesson, is it? I'm telling you the lessons I haven't learned. What have I learned? Let me think about this. Okay, in music, I think the lesson I've learned is that the important thing is not to be perfect uh, and not to fulfill anybody's uh, preconceptions of you. The important thing is, uh, and the important thing is not to criticize yourself and trying to make yourself better all the time, although there's, there's room for that. The important thing is to be at peace with what you are. I think that's the most important thing in performances because it's not. It's not fun to watch someone who is unhappy, mm. you know, who, who, is, who is not happy with their performance, who is sort of edgy and, and nervous and, and being self-critical. That's not fun to watch. You want to watch somebody who feels infused with energy and has something to give you and gives you something to be joyful about. Mm -hmm. um, and if, if a mistake is made, you don't want him to be going, oh God, you know, I really, really wish I hadn't done it. You want him to go, huh. Oh, that was a mistake, you know, that's kind of part of what I do. Mm -hmm. And then everybody feels comfortable. And it relates to what you said. People like to see the mistakes. They see a mistake from, from us and they know we're human and they mm -hmm. relate much better. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's about. We are all imperfect human beings. So in the old days, I did used to worry if I showed myself up by not playing something the way I thought it should be. But now I look at past performances and I think, I'm okay with that. I'm, mm -hmm. I feel... 
I can forgive myself, I can enjoy myself just being what I was at that moment. So I think, well, I should be the same about what I am now. I should be forgiving about what I am. I had a great conversation with Frank Zappa. I'm, I'm definitely going to share this with mm-hmm. you. And I only met him once because I worked with his son, Dweezil. Have you met Dweezil? No, I don't think so. No, he's a lovely guy and very clever. Uh, clever guitarist and arranger and writer. But Frank, of course, was a genius to me. I, I always regarded as him as sort of untouchable talent, mm, really mm. unreachable. And I said to Frank, I was a bit nervous meeting him. I was just there because I was with his son, and, and in he came. Like, hi, Brian, hey. <laughs> I said, well, it's a little hard for me to talk to you because I, I have so much admiration for you. And he said, I don't know, he's going to be ridiculous, you know. I said, why is that? I said, well, you, you seem to have such courage because you, you go out there and most of what you do is improvised. It seems like you don't worry about making a mistake. And he just laughed. He said, how can it be a mistake? He said, it's my song. It's my arrangement. It's my guitar. It's my performance. It's, it's my thing. How could it be wrong? How could any part of it be wrong? Mm. He said, you're the same. You are the, and I said, no, I don't do that much improvising. And he goes, yes, you do. You, every, every time you, you play, you're interpreting. And, um, and everything you do is you. Everything you do is stuff that you should be proud of. And there's no such thing as making a mistake. So I really kept that in my head and it, it improved my relationship with myself over the years. <laughs> mm, I think it is interesting. I mean, in the classical world, we have a really difficult time with mistakes. There's a big judgment culture, I guess, everywhere. But I was wondering, because I know that you had such a difficult time with your first management company. And I know also that the press were really, really difficult when Queen first started out. I wonder, did that do anything to your confidence? And not in a bad way, but... I was wondering a little bit, I suppose, did it solidify your confidence? Did it make you feel more confident? The fact that people were sort of pushing against you and telling you that you weren't good, did that make you feel a bit more indignant? Yeah, yes, I think possibly. I think maybe it did sort of galvanise us, yeah. And we, what happened was we eventually did manage to get out. We did a deal with them. But the deal was that they would forever have a piece of us. So everything we made in the future, they got a percentage of. And that still applies, believe it or not. <laughs> so, you know, we were never totally free of these people. And we're not even now. Um, but we signed up to a man called John Reed, a manager called John Reed, who at that time was Elton John's manager. And... I'm not going to say the relationship was perfect, but what happened was John said, look, I will do the business side. I will get you out of this mess. Don't even think about it anymore. Just go off and make the best album you can make and we'll go from there. But to answer your question, yes, I think we we came together as a group and became quite strong because we felt we had been attacked from various sides. The press was one side. The press in Britain was constantly against us. and trying to belittle us um, and we'd had this terrible management situation so yes there was a feeling of like us against the world and all we had was the belief that people out there actually liked what we were doing and were getting something out of what we did, what we did. Um, so some, sometimes it was hard to keep believing that but yeah no I'm not a, I don't think I'm a, a confident person as such um, I think it's in layers isn't it that there's You can make yourself confident and you can put a confident front on things. And I think as artists we also have a conviction somewhere inside us that 
we have something special to offer, right? I think that's in there somewhere. And then against that, there's another layer of, oh, no, I can't be any good. You know, I, I just, I don't know what I'm doing. So-and-so can do this much better than me. Why am I even pretending I'm, a, I'm able to do this? And to me, it's, there's a, it's like peeling layers off an onion, and you're never quite sure what the truth is about what you feel about yourself. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's something really interesting to talk to you about because I think a lot of people, especially on the offset of being a musician, we sort of think that the more people tell us that we're great or that, that you know, we play well, the more confident we'll feel. But it's probably not the case at all. And it's so fascinating to hear you talk about it because obviously at some points you've had hundreds of thousands of people singing along to your songs I mean actually it's hard to talk to you about stuff like this because it is before you were born but (laughs) when we started off people were um well rock music was already underway I mean I was lucky enough to be under the covers listening to Radio Luxembourg and hearing the very beginnings of rock and roll like Little Richard and um, Elvis and Buddy Holly and uh, and all those people, but by the time we were on a stage, um, rock music had been kind of defined, and it was a kind of it wasn't a very participatory thing. People generally went to rock concerts and either sat on the floor or stood around, but they didn't participate very much at all. They would like nod their heads, like head banging was a thing, or else they'd be. They'd take too many drugs and they were just kind of looking at the floor. <laughs> Probably so were the artists. You didn't go to a Led Zeppelin concert to, to sing along. It just wasn't. Or a Black Sabbath concert. Not in those days. You just went to listen. It was kind of uncool to participate. But what happened with us is people got to know the songs eventually. I mean, it takes a while before people know your stuff. But they got to know it and they started singing along. And I remember we all thought it was kind of annoying what, you know, we think, why don't they just listen to us play instead of like singing and spoiling it? <laughs> and, then, and then it became so big and people just, it was an amazing sound when they joined in the choruses and stuff. And they would clap and stamp. And it was one night in Bingley Hall in Staffordshire near Birmingham in the Midlands there. They sang every word of every song. We went off stage and they wouldn't stop singing. So they was, I, I think they sang, I don't know what they were singing at the very end. But they they went into their own thing after a while. They went into You'll Never Walk Alone. And I remember Freddie and I looked at each other and went, we should really take note of this. You know, this is something we shouldn't be fighting against. So he went off and wrote We Are The Champions, which is an open invitation to people to get together and and do it as as a community. And I wrote... I think that very night I wrote the basis of We Will Rock You, which is the same thing. I thought, what can an audience do? They can stamp, they can clap, they can chant something. So let's ask them to do it. Let's ask the audience to be part of the show. So from that moment on, that's what Queen became. We became a sort of, uh, <laughs> I don't know quite what to call it, but a sort of audience part- participation event. It was never without it from that point on. It would be very odd for us to go and play to people who didn't respond that would be so weird now I have to say we grew to love it and it there was still a feeling I think some people thought it was kind of uncool at the time it became a thing so when people like Bon Jovi came along it was kind of natural for them to do the same kind of stuff whereas it wouldn't have been 10 years earlier or 15 
years earlier. And it, it, that kind of became the la- part of the language of rock music as it is today. That's what people do now. They love to clap. They love to be given a piece to sing on their own. You know, you do this sort of a cappella thing where everything stops and you just get the audience to sing your song. It is very good if you're a lazy singer. You just get them to <laughs> sing everything. You know? Well, I did actually have one question about sort of the fame side of it as well. Obviously, at, you know, the height of Queen and still today, you're a figure in British culture. And my question is, do you sort of make a narrative of that famous person in your head to go around and do interviews with? Because I know that you are an intensely private person. It's an interesting question. Yes, I think there is a narrative. When you're doing a lot of interviews and you're in the public eye, I think you do fall into a narrative, and I'm conscious that I do that. And I think it's a question of where you draw the line. How much of your private self do you make public? Hard thing, you know, and I do find that I've developed the knack of being quite open, but nevertheless there is a place that no one will go. I will not allow anybody beyond a certain point because my private life has to have some privacy so yeah I think you get kind of adept at skating along the 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 boundary that you want to set but boundaries are important otherwise we all have to have boundaries or else we get trampled to death right with me as a writer I'm very conscious of that as well because when I'm writing songs I'm writing about me I'm writing about the way I feel and, and you can't get away from that I want to be open and honest in a song but there's a point where being totally open and honest will ruin the lives of everyone around you So that your ears can adjust to the slightly new sound of the second half of this episode, I thought it was a good time to share with you the strings that I play from Augustine Strings, a question that I get a lot. I go between three different sets of strings, which are the Imperial Reds, which are a normal tension, warm string, the Regal Blues, which are a hard tension, again, a slightly warmer string than you'll usually be hearing, but still with that clarity on the trebles, and I find that a little bit punchier for the cedar guitar. And then I also play the carbon strings when the room that I'm playing in allows for it. Remember to check them out at augustinestrings.com. It is amazing. I, I do pinch myself sometimes. I wake up in the morning and think, oh, really? Did that really happen? Yeah, because I, I, when we first spoke, I said we feel like boys. And I still feel like a boy. I think, you know, that surely that couldn't have happened. And it is, it's actually beyond our wildest dreams. We dreamed of being successful and we thought we had something special to offer. But to do all that all around the world is way beyond what any of us could have imagined. It's really true. So it's wonderful. I feel very privileged, very, well, very lucky. You know, I mean, I know we worked hard for it and we felt like we were something special. And we, I guess we kind of, uh inspired each other to an extent we we were very competitive and very sometimes very argumentative but also very supportive in a way that sort of families are i suppose so we pushed each other to great heights i think and the result the connection that we made to people all around the world is phenomenal and i i can hardly believe that it happened it is great it makes me very very proud of what we did you know and, and uh, I often think about that, and I wish Freddie was around to enjoy it now, because he would be so proud now. Mm-hmm. We are at a point in the world, in the way we're perceived, which is way beyond where we were when he left the world. Mm-hmm. I think he would be quite shocked and, and very happy mm-hmm. that we're regarded as so much, so much a part of people's lives around the world. 
Mm, absolutely. And obviously you do a lot of solo work. Um, I was listening to your live stream the other day and you said in an interview, I think it was for the BBC, you said that you were expecting to go back to that album and feel, so this is back to the light we're talking about now, you were expecting to return to that album and feel something different and you didn't feel that you did. Um, I was wondering, I know that you've opened up in the past about your struggle with mental health and I think that the listeners of Fret Not would really love for you to sort of divulge a little bit more what that means in your day-to-day life. So many classical musicians suffer with mental health disorders. What is your experience of that? I don't know. I think I'm, I think I'm a depressive, you know, I, 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 that was in the interviews, but honestly, that's what I am. <laughs> and if you sit around in a circle doing therapy or whatever, that's, that's what I, well, well, I have said that. I've been to therapy groups and people say, you know, I'm an alcoholic and I sit there and I say, I'm a depressive. And it's true because even though you get ups and downs in your life, there's a certain quality in your genes which makes you see life that way. And I'm always kind of, what's the word? I'm not a person who's full of joy naturally. I have to really look for the joy. I suppose that's what being a depressive is. And it's always there. It's always going to bite you if you let your guard down. Because when you can't really see a future that you can even contemplate enjoying. So I'm not, I'm not a very good person to live with because I tend to, to be that way. You know, I, I don't mm-hmm. get jolly very easy. When I do get jolly, it's great. <laughs> but it doesn't happen very often. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brian, what is a lesson that you would like to impart? I think the lesson which is most helpful to me is every day is going to be different. So what you might conclude on one day, you may not conclude the next day. So I would say it's good to take a while to, well, it's good to allow yourself to be impulsive, but it's good to average things out over a few days before you make one of your major decisions because you can feel completely different about the same thing on different days because the, the context is different. You, you know, you record something and you think, oh, there's no way anyone's going to like that. And then, you, and then the next day you come to it and you think, well, maybe if I just do that and that, then maybe that's something I can be proud of. And um, the thing to do is, I suppose, stay open, keep an open mind because we are not necessarily the best people to judge what we do that's my feeling you and if you play something i mean i've had that experience a lot in a studio if i'm playing a solo on something i do the first thing and i think yeah you know that can be a lot better than that. and i'll play another one another one another one and then perhaps we say well i like this bit of that one i like that bit of that one we can put that together i like the beginning of that so if i drop in on that track i can so you work like but probably a couple of hours and then you go back and listen to what you played first and you think, oh, actually, <laughs> that was pretty close to what's needed because it came from instinct. Now, I've, I've wandered from the subject a little bit, but I think it's good to keep an open mind about things because you do feel differently about things depending on where you're coming from. Does that make sense? Mm, absolutely. I think it, it's one of the lyrics, actually, from a Cat Stevens song that meant the most to me when I was younger. 
Um, you will still be here tomorrow, but your dreams may not. You know, sometimes people can say things and it just really resonates with you in a way that they may not even have meant them in the first place. Yeah, so my, my good friend Ariel. Do you know Ariel who plays mm, I guitar? Think so. I, mm. um, you, you might have seen her on my website, but I've mm. known her for some years. and She's mm. a really great guitar player. Mm. She said something to me the other day, and, I, and it's like you said, I suddenly took it to heart. And she said, maybe what we are today is exactly what we're meant to be. Even if it is painful, that's where we're meant to be. Mm. And I thought that's a very powerful concept because if you can accept today for whatever it is, you come a long way towards, I suppose it's the basis of Buddhism as well. Mm. My interpretation of Buddhism is life is crap, but deal with it. You know, <laughs> if you accept, mm -hmm. if you make that acceptance thing, then it gives you power it, it empowers you because you've you've taken on the worst so you can improve it i suppose mm. let me see that's a depressive way of looking at it isn't it i should have said <laughs> you take on the best and you make the best of it but that's that's the way i see it okay <laughs> i think that's something that classical musicians struggle with is feeling that everything is all right and that actually your best is good enough and i think Having that feeling that things are as they're meant to be is actually really, really helpful because it sort of absents you from any guilt about things that you could have done. And in classical music, we definitely have this sort of culture of this catch up where everybody feels like they're behind and everybody looks around them and sees something that they think is better than what they're doing. And people are constantly working under a huge amount of stress. And really, it would be much nicer if people were working from a place of happiness I think we just don't have that culture and all of the generations that have gone before this one come from this culture of playing from suffering and everything you do coming from suffering and nothing being good enough ever. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I remember, I think the only the words that I remember about Segovia, I heard an interview with Segovia when I was quite young and he ended up with the words, and don't allow yourself a single mistake. <laughs> that lived, that kind of horrified me for a long time. <laughs> I went to piano lessons as a kid because I was forced to. <laughs> I didn't really like it. Was a sat it was a Saturday morning every week and everybody was out playing and, and I was trudging over the bridge with my little music case to my music teacher, who was a horrible man. And he used to kind of hit my fingers if I did it wrong and he smoked a horrible pipe the whole time. And, um, and he used to give me stuff to sight read and um, I would look at it and sort of make a, a start. And he, was, he would say, oh, forget it. And he sort of brushed me aside and he would play it, just play it straight off the, off the chart. And he'd say, now do it. And I could do it then because I'd heard him do it so I could pick it up by ear. What I couldn't do was read the, the chart. So for years, when I took the music exam, somehow I bluffed that I could read music and I couldn't. I just, if I'd heard it, I could play it. But otherwise it was... So I, that's why I had to give up piano uh, exams after grade three because I couldn't bluff anymore. I can't, you, you put a chart in front of me and I'm like, yeah, I can work on this for the next week and kind of make it. I could never do what you do, like put a piece of music in front of and, and, and do it. It's, it's outstanding. How do you do that? Well, with the sight reading, I guess that really just comes from the fact that when I was little, I never used to practice. So I used to show up to my lessons and have to play pieces and my teacher would just put it in front of me and then I would have to play it. So that's that, I suppose. But I guess in classical, there's more of a tradition of reading music. And I know that in pop, you do a lot more 
ear training, which is something that actually I think we miss in classical. And I never meet somebody who can do both to the ability that they would like to. I always find that everybody who doesn't read music wants to be able to, and everybody who is sort of tied to the music and stuck in the music really wants to be able to play by ear. So it's definitely something that I'm working on at the moment, actually. You have something incredible, because not only do you read it and make it happen, but you're already putting your emotion into it. You're already interpreting. It's incredible. I find that absolutely awesome. I got to tell you. Thank you. It's very kind of you. Um, I'm going to ask you the third and final question because I don't want to keep you too long. And this question is, what is the lesson that you are currently working on? Oh my God. Oh my God. Just the lesson of life. Because I seem to be quite able to achieve stuff out there. But as far as getting my life in order, I'm the worst. So that, that's, the, that's the lesson I'm trying to learn. Mm -hmm. And I don't seem to be doing very well at it at this moment in time. So that's it really, Rosie. That's <laughs> <laughs> just like, I do not know, I do not understand this lesson. I can't, I can't get it together. Yeah. Mm. That's it really. But I think you do have a good team around you. I saw that on the release day for Back to the Light that you've got a lovely team. I've, had, I've been so lucky having great people to work with because mm. as time goes on, and I get more focused on whatever it is that's in my mind, I get less and less capable of doing anything normal. I, I look at a TV remote now and think, oh, God, I'll never get this together. It's just <laughs> stupid. You know, I, I used to be a very technical person. Now it's like, no, don't let don't look. And I went into somebody's house today mm. where they have no switches. They just have these little buttons. They have a, a row of about 20 buttons, and you have to find the right button to sort of dim the lights or or put the music on or open the curtains. And I'm just like, I cannot deal with this. I can't, I can't. like somebody has to do this for me. It's just pathetic, but I can't do it. I don't, I don't want to deal with it. I just don't want to. You know? <laughs> My dad will be thrilled that you've said that. My mum is constantly trying to get him into the newest technologies out there. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm comforted that you feel the same as I do. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Fred Knot. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review and subscribe to be the first to hear each episode as soon as it comes out. Join me in two weeks' time, where I'll be talking to Drew, aka That Viola Kid on Instagram, about change, how we can instigate it, and how showing up imperfectly is far better than not showing up at all. <laughs>